When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. How do mothers and daughters speak? I'd say just really look at ourselves. We can sit next to each other and just say, I see that you're suffering and I'm here. And that's the most that you can do. And that's a lot to sit still and receive it. We just have to keep practicing. This week on the podcast, I speak with Azarine Van Delit Alumi, author of the novel Savage Tongues, about a young woman, Arazu, returning to a small seaside town in Spain to revisit an important and impactful time in her teenage years. Azarine and I talk about how history lives in our bodies, traveling with healing in mind, and the joy she finds riding horses. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgewood, and this is Lit Up. It is my great pleasure to have Azarine van der Liet Alumi on Lit Up. Azarine, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Azarine, we're obviously doing this remotely and I wish we were in the same room together, but how are you today? Where are you today? Yeah, I'm doing good. I am in South Bend, Indiana. And yeah, just heading to my other home in Chicago this weekend. And we were in Turkey for a couple of weeks and we're happy to be back home and with our pets. What are your pets like? They're very funny. Uh, we have a little cat named Zaytun. She, she is the sweetest, cuddliest, most talkative cat I've ever had. And and we have a dog, Everly, and then this tiny little white dog who looks like a cotton ball and just runs around and dances, and her name is Luna. How do you manage living in two places? That must be tricky and like hard for, I don't know if you're a person who needs their writing space to really get into that, mm. that kind of cocoon that you go inside of. How do you manage that? Yeah, you know what? It isn't as easy for me as I thought it would be to go back and forth. We'll be either there for two weeks and then come here or vice versa. And I'm still trying to figure out how to write in two different spaces. But when we go, the pets come with us and it's a raucous. It's <laughs> pile them all in, bring the chickens. That sounds amazing. I'm wondering too if like place, because place is so important in your work, if over time you'll notice that there's a different tone to like where you've written something? I don't know if there's 
a different tone, but I definitely feel like I need the oxygen I get in Chicago. I mean, South Bend is a great place to be writing. It's really quiet. It's very green. I love that I'm constantly at the barn riding horses, but gosh, there's a moment where you feel like you're going to disappear. You're just, you feel so far away from the rest of the world. And then I go to Chicago and I see all kinds of humans and all kinds of people. And I'm like, oh, I'm alive. And there's so much to see and smell and do. And I think that's really helpful to have. Yeah. I love knowing that about your life. Thank you. <laughs> Azrin, we're talking about your third novel, Savage Tongues, and it is quite a powerful, moving, eviscerating piece of work that is really remarkable. Can you give us that brief description that everyone always asks you to give about uh, your book? I'll give it my best shot. Um, Savage Tongues is really a novel about uh, the enduring power of friendship and geopolitical crisis and healing from, from trauma. And it's a novel that follows the story of a woman who's a writer who returns to Spain in order to recover an understanding of who she was when she was 17 and involved in a pretty difficult affair with a much older uh, man. And you know, as a novel that's thinking through questions of history, geopolitics, the Middle East, what it means to be American, and finding your chosen family in the midst of all of that. I'd love to ask when your protagonist, Arazu, who we meet right away in the beginning of your novel, how long you've lived with her in your mind and in your psyche. I feel like I'm always thinking about the female psyche. I feel like it's a rendition of a female narrator that is struggling with location and exile, but at a mature phase of her life. You know, we really meet her halfway through life and she's looking back at who she was when she was 17. And she came on really strong and we sat together for a good two years and, and now it's nice to see her in the book. Well, there is an incredible way that we flip back and forth between the present where she is, I would say, a successful writer who's found her words. And then we meet her as that 17-year-old who's arrived on a Spanish island, Marbella. Why is she arriving at this place? What is she expecting when she gets there? What is this first moment that ends up shaping the rest of her life? Mm. So she goes to Marbella, which is in southern Spain, to meet up with her father. And this is all unfolding in the aftermath of a pretty brutal hate crime that her brother suffers. And that kind of dislodges their lives as a family. And she's struggling with this moment of, of self-loathing from watching her brother be attacked so horribly and almost not make it. And she is kind of shipped off by the mother to go see the father. And it's a way of bridging the distance for the mother between herself and, and the son, who's the more prized possession. And the father doesn't show up and she ends up being alone in the apartment and having this affair that unfolds with the stepmother's nephew. And he's basically sent to give her some money, some pocket money, so that she can buy her groceries and she doesn't tell anybody she's there alone. She doesn't tell her mother. 
And she just goes into this a very self-protective sort of private space where the only person she's really interacting with is, is Omar. You describe Arazu, or she describes herself as a half-formed thing. Mm. And I thought that it was such a powerful and evocative descriptor. And can you talk about what she means about herself in terms of coming from an Iranian mother and a British father specifically? Mm-hmm. To come from two cultures that have been at war with one another, this kind of uh, nomenclature of violence or actual financial economic van- violence through sanctions or political violence and interference, meddling, colonialism. And then to have all of that charging or running and coursing through her body, where she feels very much oriented toward her Iranian um, side. She's very much detached and distanced from the British and the American side of herself. And yet they coexist. So it's being a hybrid creature where, where you belong both to the colonizer and to the colonized. And it's it is very hard to integrate those two things in our consciousness because they naturally repel one another. And there's a lot of cultural pressure in America to choose a side or to perform one in a kind of essentialist way that would signify some kind of authenticity. And when you're of a split consciousness or a dual consciousness, those those it's not possible. It's not possible to fit so squarely into a schema. And she really is very aware of the way that history lives in her body. There is a comment that her father would make to her in her upbringing. And it reminds me of exactly what you're talking about when he would say to her, your people, as if distancing himself from A, his daughter, who is of two people, but of his blood as well. I'm wondering why that was important to make that distinction. And I'll just share something of my own. My parents are divorced, but my father would always say, your mother. Mm. And I felt Every time he said it, it was like a punch in the gut because it was as if to say, that was, that's your thing now, as if he never had a role in she becoming a mother. And it just, that really hit me. And I wondered how that must hit and why you wanted to then give an example of how that plays out just in the domestic everyday sense. Yeah, that's so interesting. I feel like a lot of fathers would use that kind of language. I've heard it from friends or other people who whose parents are divorced and, and where the divorce maybe wasn't super amicable. And that's definitely the case with the narrator here. And it's the case with my family too. And I, I feel that I, w- I am really interested in, in this, in exploring how the geopolitical conflicts of the countries and the nationalities that each of these parents belongs to, then like further fuels these domestic exchanges that are violent and dissociative or alienating. It's totally a gesture of detachment. It's like, you're over there and I'm over here and my hands are clean, I'm sterile. And it's so clinical and divisive. You know, the father in the novel would definitely be the kind of father who would say something like that, your mother. And in addition, 
is speaking at the daughter also from his own subject position, which is a British man who was part of the, the Royal Navy and has this this superiority that's unexamined and unconscious entirely, which can be very damaging, right? To your point, when I bring in my example, I was so conscious of having such a simplicity to mine, like it's on one level, right? Whereas what is happening in your book is that interaction has an entire historic, political the conflict of countries behind it. And I think that connects to, can you tell us about the scene where Arazu is flying from England to Marbella and she takes a picture of a woman who's on her bachelorette? I think it relates to what we've been talking about. Yeah. And I wonder about that moment a lot because Arazu assumes that this girl is simple. We don't really know, right? It's a, it's kind of a cruel assumption that she's making and at the same time, she also trusts her own judgment in the way that people's bodies, we do carry our histories in our bodies and, and the way that we move and our gestures and how safe we feel in a space. And I feel like this girl that she takes a picture of on the plane on the way from England to Marbella is drunk. She has entire tribe of, uh, what are they called? They're like the hen hens. tribe. Yeah. The <laughs> in Australia, people go on a hen's do, yes, which is a bachelorette. Yes. And it's horrible to think of all these hens, like chickens. I don't know. That's definitely the the connotation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in the scene, they're all together and they're all wearing the t-shirts. And that in of itself isn't very conscientious or there's no examination of the patriarchy there happening at all. And there doesn't need to be, you know, we're all entitled to kind of the fun of it too. But yeah, she's obsessed with this girl who's just wearing a wedding dress and drunk and passed out and has this fake crown that says love on her forehead. And she takes the picture and sends it to her best friend. And she knows that the best friend will understand immediately. She's being critical of the girl, but she's also really, I think, envious probably of that simplicity and that ease and the way of a person, just a woman moving around the world with a tribe because she's had to move around the world completely alone. She was 17 by herself all summer with no guardians and a feral wild child. Love also to know about this idea of returning to difficult traumatic memories as a way to heal. It's obviously very dear to you. I just want to hear everything you have to say about it. Yeah, I was just having a conversation about that with someone else about why even bother to return. And I think she's trapped outside of the the visceral memories and they've stilted her in some way emotionally. And she needs to re-inhabit that space in order to unlock them or tap back into them. And she feels very strongly that unless she actually has an embodied experience of return that she won't be able to access who she was when she was 17. And she also, I think this is something I really believe and, and I write about often, the way that space holds memories and the homes we live in hold these, these energies of who we were. And this is why exile is so painful is that 
we are severed from those points of reference that built meaning in our lives and helped us understand who we were and what our function is. And so she really feels like she has to re-inhabit that space. She also inherits the apartment where the affair happened and it's a dilapidated, it's a ruin, which is interesting too, if you think about it symbolically. But they're, the two friends, they're really deep in a conversation about post-colonial healing and somatic healing and sexuality and, and sexual orientation. And I think that they, they understand in a sense that you can only heal through the body in some ways, especially if your body has been targeted and maimed or annihilated in some way. Well, and to talk about Ellie's experience, because she has her own perspective. She's, she was raised in, in America, but within a a Jewish Orthodox family, and she's queer, and in her teenagehood is brought to Israel by her mother. Can you explain what revelations she has there and then how they relate to the way that these two friends are able, even though they're from very different backgrounds, relate clearly to the conflict within themselves about the the two sides or the mm-hmm. myriad sides of themselves. Yeah, for sure. I think that they both, what they have in common is an experience of having been dominated and by men and also by history or forces of a religion or colonialism or patriarchy. And they also both partially belong to cultures that are dominating, right? So the way that Arzu belongs to America and to Britain and the way that Ali belongs to an Israeli Jewish family. Ellie's journey is, I think, really fascinating in the sense that she understands her queerness at a pretty young age and also understands that there is a connection between being disowned for being queer and the occupation in Palestine, that these are forms of nation and and state building that make it so that toxic masculinity is the ideal uh, world order, right? Whether that's through an expression of domination that's military, through an occupation, or through a sort of heteronormativity or a homogeneity. And that these ways of kind of purging certain groups of people from the national imaginary allow nation states to actually build narratives about their position in, in the global order, about their sort of power in the global order. And I think that Ellie is very complex because she's connecting these things. She goes to Palestine because she's an activist and a pro-Palestinian scholar, and she begins to build these connections about these different manifestations of domination, different manifestations of occupation, and the ways that women's bodies are occupied, right, by history and war in very specific ways. It's so complicated, isn't it? It's so complicated. You know, as an Australian, I often feel like I'm not, I don't want to be tethered to our history. Mm. And yet there is no way to distance yourself from that. And in very explicitly, Ellie is both acknowledging where she's from, acknowledging the conflict and the, the how her people have obliterated and displaced others and then trying to work towards 
making a more peaceful world. And yet she's rejected from both sides. Yeah, she is. How does she grapple with that? Yeah, the fact it is so complicated. And I should say it's also really complicated to write a book that's really a book about friendship that and family and broken family and what it means to find your chosen family that doesn't separate between the personal and our private intimate wounds and the wounds of history because i think there's a lot of there's a lot of accommodation made for books that separate the two and that kind of are about more domestic private yearnings and books that take on the, these look at the scale right of of our yearnings from a historical perspective and try to capture all of these different ways that the personal and the political are intertwined they're difficult and i think that's ali's life right she's constantly in a position where she's having to justify her humanity to all sides. And she also understands that she's in a complete position of power and privilege with respect to the Palestinians who she's advocating for. And I think what's pretty interesting is that the idea of the implicated subject and actually really tackling that we are implicated, right? We're all interconnected and we're implicated in violence. It's not remote from our histories. We've been taught that it is remote from our histories. We've been taught to disengage politics. And that's why we haven't made those connections as overtly as I think we're beginning to make in this cultural moment, you know, where we're also at the height of the cultural wars and there's so much rage and fury, but also a lot of commitment to reconnaissance and healing. I want to switch to Arazu now because her body has been dominated by Omar, who she meets as we've said, this sexy character arriving on a Ducati, whipping off his helmet. We imagine him, the legs of a man who's just got off a motorcycle and she's a 17-year-old woman alone. And what could have been a, a love affair that is exploratory and quite beautiful essentially, when you're discovering things about your sexuality and yourself as a young woman, turns anything but and becomes mm -hmm. a, a point of which, because of the violence involved, she hasn't been able to break from. Why have her be 17 on that cusp? I think, yeah, it's that question of threshold. The book is all about these threshold spaces. You know, you're not legally considered an adult when you're 17, but you're really just right there, almost legally an adult. And it's their relationship is very complicated in the sense that he really does do an, a very good job of grooming her over an extended period of time. And he is a very attractive man. He's incredibly charming and very fun to be around. And I think for her, she's really trying to bury her head in the sand in Spain after what she witnessed happening to her brother in America and also wants to be ravished and destroyed because she feels she has a lot of survivor's guilt. And I think that he senses all of that in her. And what she is naive to is how much power he has over her. And because he's one of those fun 40-year-old guys who's really a 17-year-old at heart, 
it takes a while for her through her life to really understand what happened and that it was not consensual and that something was really stolen from her. And at the same time, she doesn't want to dismiss her own sexual agency altogether or to ascribe to a narrative of survival that only disenfranchises her even more. And some of the narratives of survival, I think this is a complicated thing to say, but do reinforce and are there to say, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. But what women actually have to live with day in, day out, hour by hour, when they've been through an experience like that and are healing from it, looking for language to understand it, feeling conflicted about it, going back and forth, and maybe even ashamed of still acknowledging desire. All of those things there isn't room for in the public arena. You know, there's still so much control over the way that women are allowed to talk about their sexuality. And that includes when we've been victimized. And I think that is what Arazu and Ali are actually writing against and writing their way through is just breaking open some space so that they can figure this out for themselves and not just take a sort of narrative that a therapist or the public hands down or the men in the, their lives who want to absolve themselves of any responsibility by saying, hey, I'm not one of those guys. Part of this story is Arazu and Ellie finding their voices and finding a language for who they are and what they've experienced. And I think in Arazu's case, particularly after the, the violent hate crime that involved her brother being severely injured, she loses her. The language that she shares with her family is also disrupted because mm -hmm. between her and her mother and her brother, they spoke Farsi with it together. And this very jarring event changes everything for them. You know, and this also coincides with her then coming to Spain and also not having a language for what's happening to her with Omar. And I feel that this also relates so much to young womanhood mm. and not being able to locate words when we're feeling angry, confused, threatened, put upon, and how actually that, but finding those words also puts us in danger with men if you if you do find the words, mm -hmm. that is also can be a problem. I'm wondering how voice and language, obviously you're a writer too, and this is your life's work, putting eloquent words to experiences. But maybe that is the one parallel between you and Arazu that I'd love us to explore, mm. finding language for our lives. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, such a difficult task to find the right words for things that feel unspeakable or, yeah, like episodes or events that leave us voiceless, that we're stunned or shocked. I think the moment with the brother where she witnesses his attack and she recognizes they came from the same parents, they share a body in a sense, they share an ethnic profile, they they share a lot of history and they share a language and the things that the attacker wants to annihilate in his body, those things exist in hers too. And 
it's very difficult. They also have the same accent, and it's very difficult for her to feel like she's going to be safe. And I think in some ways she looks for, like, catapults headfirst towards something that's going to, let's just get it over with. Let's just get my own destruction over with. And that is a very difficult thing. And it was hard to find the language to to write. And I think the book is really about this this the sort of second big event is the process of finding the language. And the book is so much about the process of finding the language, right? So it, it's not a sort of action-packed novel where things are constantly happening. It's this constant search for how do I put this into words and how do I figure out how these different parts of my identity or the narrator's identity can be translated into language. And and she can't do that without her queer family. And, and I think that's the role that they find themselves in with together, her and Ali and the other friends that are circling around. Well, I think this relationship, this friendship is so remarkable. And I think we're lucky to get those types of relationships in our lives, maybe in a lifetime that come with such commitment to one another's healing. How do they hold space for each other for their different, they're both dealing with different things, but in this case, Ellie is accompanying Arazu on this journey, really in service of her. And yet Arazu has done the same thing for Ellie. Mm. It's a beautiful, almost sharing. And there's an acknowledgement that this is Arazu's time. I'm just wondering if you've ever done this with a friend because it's reminding me, like I think we all have in certain ways for an evening or not, but this is a beautiful commitment to Mm -hmm. and a love for someone that's much deeper than I think many people experience. Yeah, I'm an incredibly lucky human. I have done this and I've done this for the friends who are the book is dedicated to and they've done it for me and it's I don't know it is an amazing act of service to go somewhere and they talk about it in the book with one another as going to each other's open-air prisons and just sitting there through it and in the book Arezu has gone to Israel with Ellie and she's gone to Palestine to also look for Sahar and with Ellie as well and then Ali comes with her to to Spain. And, and I think that really incredible friendships completely transform our lives. You know, I just, I had to write a love letter to my chosen family. And that's Savage Tongues, yeah. Was there a place for you that you could share that you had to go back to? Yeah, I mean, I've been back to Spain a lot. You know, there there are autofictional elements to this novel, and it's that Spain is such a site of longing and dislocation for me. And I can't go back to Iran. Gosh, I would give anything to do that. So I just go as close to it as I can. I'll go to Istanbul or go to Dubai. That'll be my treat. Do you imagine a, a day that you can go back to Iran? Yeah, I mean, that's so tough. I It comes up so often in conversation with my husband, and he'll be like, we will go back. There will be a day where I can go with you. And the reasons that I can't go back are also 
complicated and murky. It's not necessarily safe given what I write about. And I don't have the documents because it's, thank you, patriarchy. It's all coming through your father. And my mother is Iranian, not my father. And then there's a lot of just loss and distance with family that would need to be bridged. There's a lot of political upheaval in my family background that's unresolved and has affected personal relationships in really difficult ways. And I think that's true for most Iranian migrants in America. But yeah, I, I think... It's painful for me to be that hopeful about it, if I'm honest with you, because it just makes the yearning worse. And at the same time, hey, anything can happen, right? I can't let you go without asking about Arazu's relationship with her mother. There was something that struck really deeply, and it was how sometimes when we hear our mother's pain in her voice, instead of having the capacity and the maturity to stay and be a witness to that or just be, we run for the hills as young women because I think it's very hard to be in the proximity of someone we love so much in pain. Could you just tell me a little more about the maturity that Arazu's gained and maybe you can help all of us who want to be able to sit with the people we love when they are in pain. I'd love some guidance and wisdom because I know you've thought about it a lot. Yeah, I have thought about it. I I don't know that I'm always successful in practicing it. I think for the purposes of the novel, for Arazu, when she hears her mother's pain, she totally runs for the hills and she's shut the answering machine down. I don't want to hear that. And it's like being called back to the mother, being called back to the motherland, the the language of intimacy that they shared, and she doesn't really want to. And in part, I think there's something historical about that too, when it comes to just looking and tracing our history as women. Having the privilege and the advantage to find language for how we feel from just looking at it historically, that's a very recent thing. And we're still struggling. And that is also still very relative depending on where we are, right, in the world. And I think that how can we communicate with our mothers when they haven't found language for communicating with themselves and to then use that conversation they've been in with themselves to help us protect ourselves? If that is absent, then what? How do mothers and daughters speak? And I think in this case, the mother and the daughter don't really ever speak. There's a lot of guilt and sadness and distance. And it's not exactly fully overcome. The sadness is really acknowledged in the mother and the pain and the understanding that she exacerbated the mother's pain by being the second disappearance or absence. But I mean, she knows how to do that when she's older with Ellie and... I think it's something that we can do with one another when each person is committed to looking at themselves in a way that might be slightly unforgiving, I'd say. Just really look at ourselves. And that's when we can sit next to each other and just say, I see that you're suffering and I'm here. And that's the most that you can do. And that's a lot to sit still and receive it, right? Yeah, I don't know. 
We just have to keep practicing. Mm-hmm. There's such a tenderness to your answers too, which is so beautiful. Um, I want to ask one last question, and it is, what lights you up? Reading lights me up. <laughs> but I think just horses. I, I ride horses, and that's something that I've just started doing the last couple of years. And gosh, it's just the best high I've ever had. Oh, that is such a wonderful answer. And it's one of the pleasures asking that question, too, is how unusual the answers are. And Caitlin Greenwich, who I love and has been on Lit Up, so you might connect to her love too because she said there's one horse down the road from where she's living that makes brays every morning and makes a racket and she just knows that horse is having the best time and it brings her like total joy. It, it's what lights her up every day. That's amazing. Azarine, I am so thankful that you came on to talk about Savage Tongues. It's a remarkable book and I know it'll touch so many people and thank you for your just thoughtful divine answers I could we could talk for so long thank you for having me and and for reading it with such attention and for asking such beautiful questions it was such a pleasure to, to talk thank you for listening to my conversation with Azarine. Her book, Savage Tongues, is available now, and there's a link to purchase it on our website, lituppodcast.com. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rodofsky. Please make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Until next time, bye everyone. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.